This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state's low childhood vaccination rate worries Governor Jared Polis. He told us earlier this week he's, quote, elevating the issue. But he is also wary of any moves by the legislature to make exemptions harder. The minute you try to have the government forcing anybody to do something with their kids, you're going to create distrust of vaccinations, which is already a problem. We want to go the other way to create good, you know, people to see good science. He went on to say that stricter rules could be counterproductive. We wondered what the research shows. So we've invited Dr. Jana Shah to join us. She specializes in pediatric infectious diseases at SUNY Upstate Medical University, and she's with us from Syracuse, New York. Welcome to the program, doctor. Thank you for having me, Ryan. So in Colorado, parents can exempt their kids from vaccinations for three reasons, medical, religious, and then a category called personal belief. Uh, But not all states operate that way. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, States vary in their level of um, uh, rigor. They apply to immunizations, exemptions, and immunization mandates. Some states only allow medical exemptions. Now we have three states, California, Mississippi, West Virginia. Other states permit religious exemptions only and medical. And some states, like Colorado, for example, will allow all those three types of exemptions you listed. And so this allows you to compare and contrast states and vaccination rates and rules. So you've looked at the connection between vaccination rates and how strict a state's exemptions are. What have you found? We have found that states that permit um, both religious and philosophical or personal belief exemptions are states that will have higher exemptions rates at a state level, and they will also have lower immunization coverage. Um, So that is concerning because we know that uh, the stricter the immunization law, the better the immunization coverage at a state level with the lower exemptions. Um, Those findings are important because, as as you know, uh, we have seen erosions of um, vaccination coverage and community immunity that has led to breakthrough um, vaccine-preventable infections, such as measles, most recently. Yeah, I mean, you're in New York State where there's been a measles outbreak. Rockland County, just outside New York City, has banned unvaccinated kids from public places. How strong is the connection between stricter exemptions and higher vaccination rates? Help us understand how strong that correlation is. So what we have shown that the states that permit um, both religious and philosophical exemptions in addition to medical exemptions had um, several points percentage um, decrease in vaccination coverage and several point increase in immunization exemptions. And I would like to highlight this is sort of state-level data that can actually uh, misrepresent the problem at the community level because once you sort of zoom in on the community, at those states that permit those exemptions, you will find that there will be populations or communities of children where anywhere from 50 to 100 percent of those children might be exempted from vaccination and not protected. Um, So I think this problem is somewhat masked at a state level and is bigger as you zoom in on communities because the exemptors, people who refuse vaccinations, are geographically clustered. Right. There are these pockets. Uh, Does other research support your findings or are you alone in this? 
I'm, we are not alone. Um, our research has been replicated uh, by other scientists um, in the United States. So there is a solid um, uh, amount of data that has repeatedly shown over several years, this is not recent finding either, over several years, that um, the easier you make it for parents to exempt their children from vaccination, the higher the exemption rates, the higher the exemption rate, the greater risk of measles and pertussis or whooping cough. Right. Those are the vaccinations, the vaccines that you studied. Uh, If the legislature indeed tackles the vaccination rate this session, it could go in any number of ways. I mean, it could eliminate the personal belief exemption or the religious exemption entirely, or it could make exemptions more cumbersome. And, uh, Doctor, I understand you checked out Colorado's current exemption form online. Uh, What struck you about that experience? (laughs) Yeah, I've done it after we talked recently. And um, Colorado exemption form is particularly easy one. You know, you just log in online, you fill out very basic information, and you submit online. So it's one of the easiest processes a state can have for a parent to exempt their child from vaccination. And we know it's those uh, really low exemption, easy exemption policies that that lead to the higher exemption rates. And let's be clear, so there is, th- th- this is all um, predicated on the idea that you're sending your kid to a public school. That's the kind of price of entry in many states, right? Correct. Yeah, the immunization laws are in place. There are public health laws that are in place to protect children at schools. Um, schools are settings where uh, vaccine-preventable infections can spread very easily. Um, So they're there to protect the individual, but also to protect the community. On that subject, we got a question from a listener that I'd love to have you address. Um, And the, the question was essentially, listen, if my kid is vaccinated, why should I care that another kid isn't? Because my kid's safe. Um, Explain that. So in general, that is true. If if your child is vaccinated, um, your child has a very low risk of acquiring vaccine-preventable infection and getting really sick from it. So if full vaccination is the safest mode of protection for your child. However, depending on the age of child, um, vaccine uh, protection, protection derived from vaccination can wane over time. So we have learned from outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases that even individuals who were fully vaccinated and might have been older or might have received vaccine that may not have been stable, they could have, they contracted um, infection. So um, I want the listeners to understand that vaccination is the safest way to protect your child, um, uh, but their children might be still at the risk of uh, getting infected. Of course, we know that there are some children with compromised immune systems or illnesses that don't allow them to be vaccinated, so you're helping those kids as well. Just before we go, doctor, your research does show that education led by a health department can also help a great deal. And so when our governor says we want people to see the good science, it's not as if education doesn't pay off, right? That's correct. Yeah, education is is, is a key to helping parents understand um, the importance and benefits of vaccination, not only to their own children, but to the people around them. 
um, and um, education should lead the way, but that alone is not sufficient uh, to protect the public. The vaccination laws are a key to maintaining high vaccination coverage and limit the spread of vaccine-preventable diseases. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Dr. Jana Shah specializes in pediatric infectious diseases at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Her research shows that stricter vaccination exemptions rather do increase vaccination rates. You can hear my conversation this week with Governor Jared Polis about vaccines and more at CPR.org, where there's also a transcript. Two astronauts are on a spacewalk this morning outside the International Space Station, but they're not the astronauts originally assigned. NASA planned to have two women do the spacewalk, which would have been a first. But oops, there's only one spacesuit in their size. So it's a man and a woman out there now. Sounds sexist, right? Well, according to our next guest, that's only part of the story. Naomi Paquette joins us. She's with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Welcome to our show, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me on. How is it that uh, you get 250 miles up into space only to learn that your suit doesn't fit? <laughs> so one of the astronauts, Anne McLean, who is was scheduled to be on this spacewalk, actually trained on two suits here on Earth, a medium-sized torso and a large-sized torso, because our spacesuits aren't one complete suit. And when she got into space, she found the medium suit fit better. And why would it fit better? I guess the small had worked here on Earth? The large had worked here on Earth. The large, rather. Pardon me. Um, But the medium fit better because bodies change in microgravity. So Anne McLean has already gotten two inches taller in her time aboard the International Space Station. And there's also a lot of fluid shifting in your body. You have fluid that goes up to the upper portion of your body. And that's notoriously hard to predict. So we have trouble fitting spacesuits here on Earth. Okay. And that size simply wasn't available on the space station. So they actually do have two medium torsos on the space station, but the second medium part of that suit would require a lot of configuring to be ready to go out into the vacuum of space and go on a space walk. So instead of spending 12 plus hours to do that, it was easier to swap out the astronauts in this case. All right. Uh, the good news is that Anne McLean got a spacewalk in last week, uh, but this has been a PR headache for NASA. They were going to make history with two women on a spacewalk. You've been fascinated by space travel since you were a kid. A Google search reveals that you were National Young Astronomer of the Year in 2007. I was, yes. Are you disappointed by this turn of events? I am. It was a really exciting chance to see not only two women outside on the spacewalk, but a full support team of all women here on Earth as well. But we know astronauts get swapped out all the time for EVAs and for the spacewalks. So oh, that's not unusual to have a swap like this? Not at all. Okay. Again, because of that hard ch- time fitting spacesuits here on Earth or just other requirements that may pop up. So disappointing, but I have full faith this will happen again soon. Okay. Uh, back to the nuts and bolts of this thing. Why couldn't NASA predict or me, like make allowances for the fact that McLean's size might change and have you know, two spacesuits aboard in her size. 
So astronauts are really tightly scheduled when they're aboard the International Space Station. They are doing really critical maintenance just to continue to make it safe for habitation. And so their days are tightly packed as it is. So they prepped the one spacesuit thinking she was good to go with it. But ultimately, it was a safety call on her part after her first spacewalk. All right. Give us a sense for why their schedules are so tightly packed, though. I'd like to hear more about that. So when you're on a spacecraft floating in the vacuum of space with no Home Depot right around the corner for parts or repairs, um, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done to keep it safe and functioning, making sure all the critical systems that sometimes we take for granted here on Earth are working, that, that you have proper airflow, that your water filtration's working, that the space toilet is okay, all of those things that astronauts are responsible for. <laughs> and there's probably not a lot of room for a closet full of various spacesuits on the ISS. There's not. There's about four complete suits on the ISS. But we also have an issue that we don't have very many spacesuits as a whole anymore. That would Tell me about that. So these spacesuits were designed in the 1970s and were originally commissioned for the space shuttle missions in the 1980s. And we're still using the same set of suits. As were designed in the 1970s? Yes. We originally had a 15-year lifespan on those suits, and they've operated for close to 40 years now. Oh, that's remarkable. In other words, we're, we're using technology that comes from the era of leisure suits, Yes, okay. we are. Uh, and and why is it that there would not have been great advances in spacesuits? Is it just that they're so reliable? Maybe it's... Like These a... spacesuits certainly have been reliable and, and worked well. We keep the series of them in a constant state of refurbishment and testing. And we switch those suits out about every six years or 25 spacewalks, whichever comes first. But all of the focus on new spacesuit design has been getting us to the moon or getting us to Mars. And that's a different suit than would be aboard the International Space Station? That's correct. There Uh are very different requirements for a spacesuit on the moon or Mars than there is for the ISS. Did you mention how much a a suit costs? Do we know that? Uh, It's about $12 million. So it's also not inexpensive to make a new suit. uh, I see. An individual one is $12 million? Correct. Okay. Are there small suits? There are not. Tell me, tell me why that is. So the spacesuits went under a small redesign in the 1990s after some safety concerns. And from the research I've done, what I found is that the small suits are an engineering challenge. There's just not enough space for that 1970s computer tech to fit <laughs> in between the armholes of a small spacesuit. It's simply that there isn't the surface area to mount all of that on. Correct. Help, help us understand what a spacesuit does for its wearer. So a spacesuit's essentially a personal spacecraft. It is what keeps that astronaut alive and safe while they're outside doing repairs on the International Space Station or Hubble Space Telescope or whatever they may be working on at the time. Okay, and it's oxygenated, I assume. It is pressurized and oxygenated. So it maintains pressure on your body like Earth's atmosphere does while we're here on Earth, um, but also provides you oxygen to breathe, water, um, everything you would need to survive for six to eight hours outside where humans aren't meant to live. Oh, that's the length of a potential spacewalk. It is. They are really grueling six to eight hours of a lot of physical work because the spacesuits are so stiff, but you're also fighting against having pressure on the inside of the suit and nothing outside. So even just bending your hand is a really big physical labor. My goodness. There water, there's water you said in the spacesuits? In other words, like a, like a camelback or something? Yeah, like a little camelback. Okay. Does the lack of small 
Spacesuits just mean that some astronauts are simply not able to do spacewalks, period. That is true. There's a small number of especially women astronauts that will not be able to do a spacewalk on the International Space Station because they don't have a suit that fits. Okay. Uh, I will point out that even back in the day, there was talk about women going into space, though. Astronaut Sally Ride was recruited in 77. She was. Became the first woman in space in 1983. So just this week, the first private space capsule launched by SpaceX delivered cargo to the space station. Uh, And soon they'll be sending astronauts. What about their space suits? So SpaceX and Boeing are both our first commercial crew vehicles that are getting ready. SpaceX having already passed their test before we send astronauts. And each of them have a different spacesuit, but those are flight suits. So that's similar to what the astronauts wear on the Soyuz rockets now, just a little sleeker and newer. And uh, you made some reference to this, but uh, Vice President Mike Pence announced this week that the administration wants to send astronauts back to the moon by 2024. And there's a lot of focus as well on Mars these days and the suits that will be required. Thank you for being with us, Naomi. Thank you so much for having us. Naomi Paquetti is Earth and Space Science Program Specialist at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Now let's hear a little bit from astronaut Anne McLean herself talking to NPR about being in space. It is such a profound experience in my life. I will probably spend the rest of my life trying to find the right words to describe it. And I think words almost do it injustice. It was this combination of complete awe of looking back at the planet and understanding the context in which I had lived for so long was suddenly gone and I was in a completely different environment. Colorado's second largest city holds an election next week. Voters in Colorado Springs are choosing a mayor and a couple of city council members. There's also a ballot measure to allow firefighters to unionize. Here's CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Tom Cronin is a longtime local political analyst. Professor emeritus at Colorado College. So we sit down for a local political chat. Tea or hot chocolate? Man, hot chocolate would be great. Do you know how to make it? First up, the mayor's race. There's a strange lack of conversation in the Springs about the mayor's race. A bit odd, since this is only the third time citizens have had the chance to elect their mayor since voters gave that position more power in 2010. Because everybody knows in advance that Mayor Southers will be reelected handily. Former Republican Attorney General John Southers grew up in the Springs and is a longtime political figure here. He won his first term with nearly 70% of the vote in 2015. The three opponents Southers faces this time are a retired dentist, a homeless advocate, and a community activist, none with much name recognition. So Cronin expects the strong local economy means Southers will get a second and final term as mayor. Any major candidate or rival to him would have held off and said they might consider that four years from now. In fact, Cronin believes that may be the long-term plan of the highest-profile candidate in the spring's city council race. So we're going to begin our final statements with uh, Wayne Williams. You begin, sir, and you have one minute. Just former Republican Secretary of State Wayne Williams lost his re-election bid to Democrat Jenna Griswold last fall. My name is Wayne Williams. I am running to increase our economic vitality. I'm running to address our infrastructure needs And I'm running to make sure we have the services for a growing city. 
Williams joined the 10 other council candidates recently for a televised debate, 11 candidates vying for three at-large seats, two incumbents among them, each contender getting their chance to weigh in on hot-button local issues like affordable housing and homelessness. I just believe they need to move and go camp out in another city. Um, Okay, and those that really can't help themselves, we need to provide them with resources. We can get the red tape cut and get it off the backs of the home builders instead. Let's be honest, the developers are taking advantage of the taxpayers. I think we need to also look at traffic patterns and ensure that we have public transportation, perhaps something like a trolley. Candidates Regina English, Gordon Klingenschmidt, Dennis Spiker, and Athena Rowe. After the debate ends, the crowd stays behind to mill about and snack on tables of finger food, including social worker Pamela Roberts, who just recently moved to the Springs. What kind of stuff did you hear tonight? What stood out? Uh, Nothing stood out. It's the typical political, I'm going to give you an answer, but not really an answer. The candidates do span the political spectrum, but Roberts was not happy to see most of them are older white men. It's, you know, it's not as diverse as I wish it would have been. That highlights an underlying need to increase the wage for city council. Resident Jamin Johnson has been a candidate himself in the past. He points out the annual council member wage of just $6,000 weeds out many potential candidates. That they could reasonably put their career on hold to go and run for city council, but as it is right now, unless you're affluent and retired, you have neither the financial means nor the time to do this. Meanwhile, others argue the low wages should keep the council jobs out of the hands of overly partisan career politicians. So this leaves us with the one ballot measure this year. And for that, we'll go back to Professor Tom Cronin, whether to allow collective bargaining for the city's firefighters. It's an interesting litmus test for the community. And Cronin thinks the result will be close. On one hand, the firefighters enjoy a warm respect. And for their unionization attempt, they're going door to door. They happen to come to our neighborhood. Two firefighters came and talked to my wife. Yet the measure is up against a heavy hitting opponent. Mayor John Southers. He feels that they're well paid and that if there's unionization, it would lead to unionization of other groups of employees of the town and would become like Denver. God forbid. But he means costs would go up. And taxes would go up. And that's usually a tough sell in traditionally conservative Colorado Springs. But Cronin says the city is actually more purple than its statewide image and perhaps increasingly as more people move here. The Colorado Springs municipal election takes place April 2nd. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Pam Houston was living in her car after her first book was published. Cowboys Are My Weakness became a bestseller. That was in the early 90s. It allowed her to put a down payment on a ranch near Creed in central Colorado. Now, Houston reflects on her connection to that piece of land in her latest book, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. And Pam Houston, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. Your ranch is 120 acres. I'd love to have you describe it for us and and maybe start with the view out your kitchen window, which is really important to you. (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, Well, the first thing I see out my kitchen window is my old barn, which was built in 1920 by the homesteading family there, the Pinkleys. It's a beautiful barn, um, weathering beautifully. And just behind that barn in it, in a very similar shape is the silhouette of Red Mountain, which is a 12,800-foot 
Peak, known locally as Red Mountain. It has a different name on the maps. But um, And then just a giant meadow, a, a big park called Antelope Park, which my ranch is a small part of. And um, and then three sides of me is um, Aspen Forest, uh, Spruce Pine Forest. And then looking the other direction, out the front of the house is the Rio Grande River and a giant cliff called Bristol Head. My goodness. Now, you, you mentioned the barn, and uh, you say that it's starting to lean. So is, is the barn okay? <laughs> <laughs> the barn's okay. I, my... Uh, contractor, R.J. Mann, who's a wonderful contractor in town who restored the homesteader's cabin for me last year, um, is going to is gonna fix that barn. He's going to put a frame inside the larger frame of the barn. And he's a person in town who loves the old buildings and loves to preserve them. And I can only afford to do one thing at a time. But we're little by little, we're going to keep the ranch standing. You have animals. And I love that your animals have people names. So there's like <laughs> Isaac and Simon and Jordan and Natasha. Right. The, Jordan and Natasha are Icelandic sheep. Isaac and Simon are mini donkeys. Um, I have chickens. I have Irish wolfhounds. Uh, well, at the moment, just one. I lost... My William recently, but Olivia, and I'm about to get a new Irish wolfhound named Henry, he needs a home and he's coming to the ranch. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think of my animals as uh, members of the family, so they deserve uh, serious names. I'm sorry to hear about William. Uh, the, yeah. the price tag on the ranch was $400,000, and from your first book, you had 21000 <laughs> Uh, quite a quite a leap of faith for a blossoming writer. What what made you do it? Well, and a leap of faith for Donna Blair, who sold it to me. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the bigger leap of faith was hers. You know, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was driving around in my car, living in my tent, looking for a place to call home. And and when I sold Cowboys, my agent handed me that check for twenty one thousand more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And she said, don't spend it all on hiking boots. So, I, <laughs> Is, that, is I, that what you would have done? <laughs> well, that's what she thought I would have done. And it would have been something like that. I mean, the only thing I cared about then was outdoor gear. You know, that was my only, the only thing I, I spent real money on in those days because I was such an avid outdoors person. But, um, and when I saw the ranch, uh, the realtor who showed me the ranch... Uh, you know, I, I saw it. I fell in love with it. It was the third week of September, so the Aspens were going crazy. You know, it was Colorado at its finest. And, you know, I my 21000 was 5% down. And and uh, he said, I think Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. Why don't you give me your 21000 which was still in a check form, by the way. <laughs> like, I hadn't even cashed it. And he's like, why don't you give me your 21000 and a signed hardcover copy of Cowboys Are My Weakness, my first book, and I'll see what I can do. And she liked the idea of me. And once she, you know, I she was a stranger to me, but once she put that vote of confidence in me, it seemed rude to turn it down, you know, and uh, it was like I was on a train and the train had left the station and, and, uh, you know, it seemed like an enormous act of generosity on her part. And so I thought, well, if she believes in me, maybe I believe in myself. Well, you have to believe in yourself enough to run a ranch. I, I, I wonder if you had romanticized it in buying it and maybe failed to see exactly how much work that can be. 
Oh, certainly. Uh-huh. I mean, I was so ill-prepared. You know, I I came from deep suburbia. You know, I thought you turned – I thought hot water came out of the wall when you turned the tap on. I, I didn't understand the relationship between anything and anything, you know, in terms of how a house runs or certainly how a ranch runs. Um, I didn't understand anything about sweeping chimneys or – UV protection on logs, you know, I mean, the 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 list of things I didn't know, you know, I say, you know, in the book that, that there were all the things I didn't know, and then there were all the things I didn't even know I didn't know, you know, it, and uh, it was a very steep learning curve. And I'm not particularly handy, um, but I'm stubborn. And so I've gotten better. And I, I always say it takes me three extra trips to the hardware store, but I can usually get it done. <laughs> and, um, you know, my neighbors were super kind to me. The people in Creed are all about helping each other. And and I learned from them. You know, I, I would wait till someone came by and said, hey, when was the last time you swept your chimney? And I'd be like, okay, check, <laughs> you know, sweep my chimney. That's the next thing on the to-do list. Just speaking of Creed, one of my favorite details in the book is that at the entrance to Creed, there's a sign apparently that says 586 nice folks and 17 sore heads. Yes, yeah, that, okay. there, there, there is that sign. And the funny thing about that sign is that they update that sign like all the time, um, both with the um, population as it changes, you know, in small ways over the years and also the number of, you know, professed soreheads. You you call this ranch your tiny parcel of the American West, Pam Houston. But before this, as we said, you lived essentially in a tent that you schlepped around in your car. And it made me wonder, do you need to be tethered to the earth, to a piece of property, to have a home? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure, but I know that my commitment to this piece of property, my determination to save it. Um, and I have, I've very recently put it into an environmental trust. Um, just, just actually the day I left to go around the country talking about this book, the last thing I did was sign the papers to put it into an environmental land trust, um, with the organization called Right. I, I, my dedication to it and the way I've had to show up for it um, and the ways it's shown up for me, you know, has has turned me into an adult. It grew me up in a way, you know, I, I didn't I wasn't parented as a kid. And so so I don't know if I had to like, could I have found home in the wilderness if I just traveled around and camped out and did lots of wonderful hikes and dog sleds and skis, you know, maybe so, because I love that. But this was a whole different set of lessons. You know, this was a place that, you know, when I turn that corner and Antelope Park opens up in front of me after I've been out teaching or hawking a book or whatever I've been out in the world doing, and I see it, and that's that's my little corner of the valley and my little corner of the world. And and it's made me whole in a way that nothing else had prior to that. I'm fascinated by what you said there. I wasn't parented as a kid. And mm. in in some ways, this ranch near Creed, Colorado, helped you grow up. Um, 
And I want to contrast that with the dedication to your first book, Cowboys Are My Weakness, because mm. in it, you, you thank your parents. Right. In this book, though, you write about the horrifying abuse you suffered at the hands of your father and the alcoholism of both of your parents. Mm-hmm. How do you square those things, the gratitude you expressed in the first book and the nightmarishness of, of this one? Well, all I can say about that is, you know, I still have gratitude for my parents. You know, it took me a long time to tell that story. And one reason it took me a long time is because I had a professor years ago who said, you can't swing a dead cat anymore without hitting an abuse story. And that sentence got into me and made me think, OK, well, nobody wants to hear that anymore. But but I'm still grateful for my parents. You know, the last line of this book is about my mom. I gave my mom the last line of my memoir, which she would love. I mean, I have great affection for my parents, even though they did terrible things to me. And I think most abuse victims you talk to would say the same thing. You know, my my parents gave me life. They fed me. You know, we had enough to eat. My mother said, you know, I don't even want to see you till dinner. And she sent me out into the woods and I found myself there. You know, um, I had two parents who didn't want anything to do with having a child and they had one anyway. And, you know, that there were tough times because of that. But that's not the worst thing that can happen to someone. You know, I I went out and found nurturing and love and parenting in the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and 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 ultimately in this ranch. Um, And because the ranch required stuff back, you know, it required a two way relationship. Um, I had to to care for it, too. And that was the critical thing about the ranch. But. But I, you know, my parents gave me so many things in addition to a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the Colorado author Pam Houston. Her new book, a memoir, is called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. She's making reference uh, in that title to her ranch near Creed, Colorado. And uh, there's a passage that captures the contrast between your life in rural Colorado and life at the University of California, Davis, where you teach. Uh, Will you read from the middle of page 75 for us? And just for some context, it mentions a German language poet named Paul Ceylon. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) My weird life. In Creed, there is no movie theater and no drugstore and no one who would ever use a phrase like Paul Ceylon-esque. In Creed, I talk to my neighbors about shrinking water tables and bingo at the Elks on Saturday night. When I go to the Monte Vista co-op to buy sealant to shoot into the water trough and mineral licks and big tubes of ivermectin horse warmer and Carhartt overalls, I notice how different it is from the Davis co-op where I buy organic turmeric and homeopathic allergy medicine and where people take their groceries home in environmentally friendly macrame nets. To the people in Creed, I am intelligent, suspiciously sophisticated, and elitist to the point of being absurd. To the people at UC Davis, I am quaint, a little slow on the uptake, and far too earnest to even believe. I wonder if in any other book on the planet... 
there is in the same paragraph, Carhartt overalls and organic turmeric. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but uh, indeed, a, a contrast of your sort of two lives, how do you negotiate them? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is I like my two lives. As much as I love the ranch and as much as I am connected to it and as much as I miss it when I'm gone, and I do, you know, I love sushi and I love art house movie theaters and you know, I love to talk about books, you know, I mean, many, many books. <laughs> and uh, so so I'm I'm grateful for my time away. You know, I I, uh, I love to teach and I get to teach at UC Davis and at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I love working with young writers, especially young writers from those communities. And um so I it it's a nice balance. And then and then I get to go home to this beautiful, you know, peaceful, uh, nurturing spot and do my writing. So it's a beautiful life. And and that's what I mean about my parents, you know, like, like I created this beautiful life out of what they gave me. So it's not like, well, am I mad at them or, or am I grateful for them? You know, Mm. it's definitely both. Colorado author Pam Houston, her latest book is Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Blue Mustang, the sculpture with red glowing eyes at Denver International Airport, has inspired a video game. The game called Lucifer, the Doom Horse of Denver, is for smartphones and tablets. Its developer, Ryan Seabury, remembers being awestruck by the blue horse when he saw it for the first time. And so I thought for the game, it would be cool if the horse actually came to life and went on a rampage through Denver and just started destroying everything. I asked him what the object of the game is. Well, so you play as Lucifer, and the object is to generate as much destruction value before your evil power runs out. And your evil power, he says, comes from the souls of innocence. Players who are familiar with the Mile High City will recognize the backgrounds. It's based in Denver in the actual street map of Denver, which I literally hand-drew from some open-source map data. And then I plugged in about 30 different landmarks, pieces of art, historical buildings. Just kind of a love letter, sort of a twisted love letter, I guess, to Denver. Blucifer, though, is not Ryan Seabury's first Colorado-inspired game. About five years ago, he created Rush Hour, set on I-70 at the Eisenhower Tunnel. So actually, the idea came from just coming back from skiing with my kids. And one of my kids, who was a little younger at the time, asked what the uh, runaway trunk ramps were for. And so as I was explaining it to him, I'm like, oh, you know, it'd be kind of a fun little simple mobile game to make. So your truck's brakes are out and you're trying to dodge as many cars as possible before you wreck. Ryan Seabury says he isn't making bank with these games. In fact, he says he donates the proceeds to charity. His goal? To do something cool for Colorado and help you pass the time.
Next week, a new music festival debuts in Aspen, and it'll feature a local favorite. The string cheese incident of Boulder formed about 25 years ago, and now it's one of the best-known jam bands around. They're going to headline the Après, which will take place on the snow at the base of Buttermilk Mountain. It's the perfect gig for a band that got its start in Colorado ski country, as founding guitarist Bill Nershey told me last fall. Well, uh, we met in Crested Butte as uh, just a, a group of ski bums looking to get through the winter. Huh. You know, let's put something together, make a little money. Maybe we can uh, even play for our ski passes. And uh, after we played a couple of times, we got uh, some really great responses from uh, folks in Crested Butte that we were playing music to. And I thought, I have some great connections in Telluride. I had lived in Telluride for about 15 years. I said, let's go back to Telluride and see how it goes over at some of the places I've been playing. And uh, we went and we played Telluride. And that uh, is a really enthusiastic music crowd there due to all the festivals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, we were really well received so uh, we kept the band going, kept the band going, and, and a couple of years later, uh, we were enthused enough to uh, decide to go for it and hit the road. You said that you originally played possibly for ski passes. Did you ever actually play for a ski pass? Oh, yeah. Okay. Anytime I could. <laughs> but uh, Mike and I had, had gotten together, Mike Kang, our mandolinist and uh, uh, violinist, had gotten together and played some opera ski shows. And uh, we were asked by another uh, musician in town if we wanted to go up and play a particularly long ski line that they had <laughs> on the mountain. They said, we need some entertainment. This one line at Paradise Lift, it just gets so long and people get so bummed out in that line. Just come up to the mountain and hang out and play your instruments in that ski line. I am so jealous of these people who early on got to see the string cheese incident perform for ski lines. Talk about <laughs> talk about humble beginnings. What inspired you to pick up the guitar in the first place? It was a family thing. We uh I I'm one of six, the youngest of six. Wow. We always had guitars laying around and and music books, songbooks laying around. And uh, we would go up to the country in the summers and there was no TV. There wasn't much in the way of entertainment aside from hiking around in the mountains there. And and we would uh, get together quite often and, and pull out the music books and sing songs. I'm picturing one of those like 1960s family folk acts, you know, with <laughs> with a single release album that I'd find in the back of a record store these days. <laughs> but no, it's not quite that. Well, we all we all played, but I'm the only one that that was really inspired to uh, continue playing and try to make a living at it, just because I didn't want to get a a real job. <laughs> <laughs> Up with a crew there, 
and take it all in. Share stories, lots of laughter, let the dogs run, nothing like a camp out for some real good fun. Getting cozy by so Believe is the second record you've made with Jerry Harrison, who is the guitarist for Talking Heads. Right. We're uh, everybody in the in the band is uh, a big fan of the Talking Heads. We got to meet Jerry Harrison a couple of times, and we hit it off with him. And he's helped us a great deal in just uh, bring our music to a focus. To a focus. What does that mean? Well, Is it like know, a therapy session? Well, there's six people in the band and six different ideas of how how a song might turn out or what it's going to sound like. And you hear these things in your head. And sometimes it's nice to bounce ideas off a producer and have him kind of corral all the different ideas uh, uh, that the band members might have and focus them into one thought. I feel like we have to hear the String Cheese Incident's take on... Classic Talking Heads song, This Must Be the Place. Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Bill Nershi of The String Cheese Incident. I know that you've answered this question a million times. There are online forums dedicated even to just getting the answer, but briefly, the story behind the name The String Cheese Incident. Is it true you hate the name? Uh, the name, uh, it, it, <laughs> well, in a word, yes. Okay. <laughs> And all I can say to asking what the name means uh-huh. is et tu, Ryan? Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know it's the laziest question, right, for an interviewer. It's like, why did you write this uh, book? <laughs> okay, well I'll I'll give you the number one uh false answer. I mean the number one <laughs> answer to that question, which is uh, as we lived in, in Crested Butte, there is a restaurant called Donitas. Great Mexican restaurant there, and they serve really powerful margaritas. We went in there and maybe had too many margaritas, and we had friends sitting at a table not too far away, and a food fight ensued mm. in that restaurant. <laughs> and we were, uh, if you know what, 86th means to th- to throw away to 86 is to throw out get out yeah and don't come back and uh, we were 86 from that restaurant after the food fight which later became known as the string cheese incident it was not maybe string cheese maybe it was jack cheese maybe we should be known as the jack cheese incident Okay, I was going to say, I don't think of string cheese as being at a Mexican restaurant. Okay, all this, right, we're just, changing our name. Okay, <laughs> and you've you've heard it right here on Colorado Matters. Uh, Donitas Cantina, still open in Crested Butte. Unfortunate how that name sounds like, don't eat us. Don't eat but, us. Okay. Well, that was what I called it, yes. 
There's a vast library of your live shows online. You do, though, record albums in the studio. In fact, you have a new recording facility in Louisville. This is a song that features Bonnie Payne of Colorado band Elephant Revival. The track is My One and Only. Hear all their voices as they cry. The string cheese incident with Bonnie Payne. We have less than a minute, Bill. I'm curious how you find the energy to play for several hours each night. Uh, I guess I guess we uh, really feed off the energy of the crowd, and it gets the adrenaline going. And I think that's a big part of the reason we're all skiers and outdoors men of you know riding, skiing, etc. And we like that adrenaline buzz. And uh, that's one of the important things about playing music that we get out of it. And that keeps us going during the course of uh, a four and a half hour show. Let's go outside. Let's go outside. You heard Bill Nershey, founding guitarist of the String Cheese Incidents. Performance and skiing come together next weekend when the Boulder Band headlines the Apre Music and Mountain Festival at Buttermilk. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.